Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. In late May, a video of yet another police officer killing yet another unarmed black man in the United States went viral. It sparked widespread protests against police violence and racial injustice. As outrage spreads over the killing of George Floyd in the U.S., protesters have taken to the streets around the world. Chants of Black Lives Matter echoed from thousands of protesters in cities around the world. But even before George Floyd's death, racial discrimination and disparity dominated headlines across America. That's because Black Americans have suffered disproportionately from COVID-19. The Washington Post reporting that counties that are majority Black have three times the rate of infections as counties that are majority white. Those counties have almost six times the rate of death. Officials have said over and over again, the virus doesn't discriminate. But the disparities that have long been part of our medical system in America are now leading to what some call a crisis within a crisis. Do we need a big study to figure out why we have this disparity? Or is it staring us dead in the face? One reason for this is that Black Americans account for a disproportionate share of the quote-unquote essential frontline jobs that carried on amid shelter-in-place orders. Essential workers are keeping the American economy humming. They are medical professionals or workers in transportation, grocery stores, drugstores, meat packing plants or whatever. These individuals are taking on a daily basis, often times without hazard pay, oftentimes without the protective equipment that they need and that they deserve. And if you look at who they are and the equity and fairness of what has happened, we should right this wrong. That's no accident. Economic policies bear significant blame. And it's not hard to see why. Very few Black people are helping to shape them. Though there are many prominent economists of color globally, their work is usually confined to the development arena. And overarching economic policy prescriptions still tend to be shaped by developed country economists, not many of whom are Black. In the U.S., just 3% of economics PhDs were awarded to Black people in 2017. Moreover, the topic of race is not a popular one in economics. In the last 30 years, less than half of 1% of all top economics papers addressed race or ethnicity. The question now is, what would economics look like if more economists were Black? Hi. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Fine, how are you? Lisa Cook, an associate professor in the economics department at Michigan State University, joins us to discuss. Where are we finding you? I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, This is where I live, even though I'm at MSU. Great. So, Lisa, I want to start by talking about Sadie Alexander. Despite being the first African-American to receive a doctorate in economics in 1921, Alexander is not particularly well-known. What did she contribute to the field? Well, she was our Jackie Robinson. She broke the color barrier for the economics profession, and she continued to do that through the law when she wasn't able to find a job working as an economist. It was unfortunate because she clearly showed prowess in economic analysis based on her her dissertation. And I think that just shows how there can be 
a misallocation of talent. And we have more and more evidence uh, about this, uh, especially the macroeconomic effects of the misallocation of, of talent. And one of the things that she proposed, my understanding, is full employment. I think when we when we talk about full employment today, I think a lot of people only refer to white full employment. But she was really talking about how can we get full employment for whites and blacks? Yes, no, that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that representation brings is uh, better better questions that are not just for one part of the population. How do we do it for, for everyone? And I think that's still a legitimate question. Last year, Lisa mentioned Sadie Alexander in a New York Times op-ed, noting that the experience of Black economists, especially Black female economists, is disturbingly similar today. Just last September, in an American Economic Association survey, 62% of Black women respondents said that they had faced racial or gender discrimination in the workplace. Many called the field toxic. So when we were writing, we were just noticing from the AEA Climate Report how African-American women were just being curtailed at every juncture. So we found that they were the ones to not just experience, you know, report experiencing discrimination. Uh, so if you change that around for it to be more of an empirical question, how many times do you have to take steps to avoid discrimination, assault, and so on? Black women exceeded every other group, and they reported more discrimination more discrimination with respect to uh, pay and promotion. And the signal to Black women, as it was in 1921, is that this is not a place you should be. We don't want you here. Lisa has experienced some of this firsthand. She spent 10 years trying to get her work on the link between violence against Black people and innovation published. You know, you have a short period of time to try to get tenure, right? I mean, it's publisher parish. I'm spending 10 years trying to get this thing published. And, you know, there are three Nobel laureates who were telling me I've got to publish it. Yet despite this support, she constantly had to educate journal referees on U.S. history. It was a process she described as demoralizing. I had this uh, long tweet thread about the kinds of questions that came up repeatedly. One of them was, what is a former slave? Is it that the referee didn't know anything about slavery? Well, that's that's shocking. If you're an economist, I think that this uh, that's a serious oversight. Uh, and I don't care what kind of economics you're doing. That wasn't the only shocking question Lisa was asked. The second thing that was brought up was, why would you care about a lynching that happened in another state? And what essentially they were saying was, why would you care about a lynching that, say, wasn't your family? And I'm thinking, do, do you see what's going on in the streets? This is, you know, after the Rodney King beating. And there are many examples of these police-involved shootings. And, and what the referees were saying to me was, we don't identify with those people at all, as if they're not human beings. So that's what I found demoralizing. They couldn't see that this was somebody was in pain, somebody was dying. This was somebody's child. This was somebody's dad. This was somebody's brother or sister. That there was a lack of empathy for lynching victims. 
I mean, I, I just, I, I found that striking and just, you know, uh, on some level, just unbelievable. Lisa's experience is a testament to the challenges Black economists can face, especially when presenting conclusions related to race. Yet she did not set out to study race at all. When I was submitting this work, I was not looking at it through a racial lens. You know, I was just using these data that happened to come from African-Americans. And given that economists use data from small populations, you know, populations within populations all the time, and they generalize the results, I didn't think that this was different. That this ha- that just happened to be African-Americans and s- rather than, say, uh, the Basque population in Spain. I just thought that this was a cautionary tale for all countries. But her work shows how diverse perspectives can enrich the field. As a student of the Nobel laureate economist Paul Romer, Lisa was well aware of his theory of economic growth and innovation. It's the idea that, beyond investing in capital or labor, countries could boost growth by nurturing innovation in a number of ways. This included investment in science, effective market competition, and most important, strong patent laws. Create this environment, Romer argued, and innovation would follow. But in Lisa's view, something was missing. You can't just say you have intellectual property rights on the books and that's enough to invite innovation. That was the conventional wisdom uh, when I started doing my research. And I just thought that that was misguided given everything that I'd seen, say, in Russia. I was thinking that if poorer countries were ever to catch up, this is the way they would have to do it. They would have to invest in the arrival rate of ideas. They, they would have to invest in these things that would give positive externalities so that they could uh, catch up and even skip some steps with respect to development. However, there were some people who are economists, and I think this was the conventional wisdom, that intellectual property rights, if they were strong enough, would invite innovation. These are people writing at the same time that, that Paul is writing, and they're thinking about how to protect those ideas and how to provide incentives for those ideas to come forward. And strong property rights is what everybody seemed to be talking about. Again, this was a bit misguided because I'd been in countries where they had the intellectual property rights in place. They had them on the books and they were still asking, uh, why doesn't innovation come? Why aren't people patenting? And this was a question that I actually got fairly often in Russia. So I just thought that it was uh, a bit naive to believe that that was sufficient, that personal security, for example, or rule of law doesn't matter that much. Lisa compiled seven decades worth of information on patents and went about painstakingly comparing data sets marking race, violence, and other indicators. What she found was striking. I found that violence impacts both the direction and rate of innovation. And this is measured by lynchings, riots, and segregation laws. And these differentially and negatively impacted African-American inventors and significantly relative to their white peers. 
the cautionary tale there is that when violence increases, the rate of arrival of ideas can cease, and this can have persistent effects. One of the major findings of the paper is that 1899, during that period I was studying, was the peak year for African-American inventions per capita, patents per capita. But then when I extended the data set to 2010, I did the same calculation, and 1899 was still the peak year for patenting per capita for African-Americans. And after your research was finally published, how was it received? There was a whole semester when I was giving this one paper, like I'd ask what paper they wanted me to give, and it turned out to be this one. You know, and I was delighted to uh, give it. I was uh, disappointed and dismayed that it was becoming increasingly relevant. That's interesting. That's something I actually want to ask you about. Your research does have a clear place in current discussions about police brutality. And you just mentioned that the effects of racial violence actually depressed African-American invention for over 100 years. So how long before these communities recover from the violence inflicted on them today? I would say that these processes take take a long time. You know, Brown v. Board of Education just didn't come about in 1954, right? There were a lot of cases that came before the Supreme Court and some that didn't that laid the groundwork for it. And the same is true for the Voting Rights Act. The same is true for the Fair Housing Act. So I would say that these movements take a long time to bring about change, to bring about permanent change. On the one hand, you have to be impatient to keep bringing up these injustices, and you have to be patient to see uh, policies crafted, thought up, crafted, and funded. All of these policies have to be funded and enforced, and that's what happened Uh, under Nixon. So the war on poverty goes into effect and a lot of the provisions are immediately reversed by Nixon. So, you know, we have to be consistent and we have to keep our eye on the ball. I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for you about the number of years, but I would say that we have the opportunity to create uh, change in every generation. And if I understand my uh, our friend in the family, Coretta Scott King, uh, as I have in the past, it is up to every generation to defend the rights that were won by the previous generation. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org.
Lisa's contribution to our understanding of innovation and the challenges she faced in getting her findings published raised questions about what might be missing from other economic theories and the policies they have shaped. Take the Chicago School of Economics and the free market orthodoxy it embodies. Having emerged in the 1930s, the Chicago School's influence grew significantly after the 1950s when white resistance to racial integration led to growing anti-government sentiment. To many, free market principles, including deregulation and the rejection of expansionary fiscal policy, were the perfect antidote. I call for my second witness, an internationally renowned economist from the University of Chicago, Dr. Milton Friedman. I believe that the major problem which faces this country in the 1970s and 80s is how we stop the growth of government, how we prevent Leviathan from growing so big that it destroys our freedom and our ability to run our own lives. The Chicago School suffered no shortage of intellectual firepower. In the second half of the 20th century, economists like Gary Becker, James Buchanan, Milton Friedman, and George Stigler reshaped the discipline and the way economic policy was devised. All won the Nobel Prize, and one in particular, Friedman, reached a mass audience in a way that few economists do, through popular books and a 10-part TV series. His TV series was about choices, risks, freedom, equality, and making a better future for all of us. Everywhere in the world, and especially here in the United States, we need to keep government on the sidelines. Let the people develop their own skills, solve their own problems, better their own lives. The world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. I don't think it's an exaggeration to call Milton Friedman's Free to Choose a survival kit for you, for our nation, and for freedom. Lisa, I'd like to talk about the Chicago School and its best-known member, Milton Friedman. In his 1962 book, Capitalism and Freedom, Friedman argues that free market capitalism protects people from being, and I'm going to quote here, discriminated against in their economic activities for reasons that are irrelevant to their productivity. So if that's true, why hasn't the market pushed bigots out by showing that the most competitive firms don't discriminate for such irrelevant reasons? Well, clearly that was a market failure when he was writing, and it's a market failure now. If there's a misallocation of talent, it comes from somewhere, and that's got to be discrimination and racism, systemic racism. And to tell you the truth, he surprised me even by reading my work carefully and giving me very detailed feedback. And it was even more surprising that he was very supportive of the work, that it was, it was intuitive to him. So I think he might have seen how immediately violence can have an effect on innovation and on economic activity. So I think he could see how the pieces were being put together, that this wasn't, you know, wasn't using um, exotic models. I wasn't using exotic data. I was just um, putting those uh, data sets and the analysis together in an unusual way. 
this was making the case that that discrimination existed and 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 uh, violence existed. Milton Friedman's ideas have obviously been hugely influential here in the United States, but they've also had a huge influence around the world. And they've certainly played a major role in shaping the so-called Washington Consensus. And that paradigm, which emerged from leading Western academic and policy institutions, has very much shaped developing country policy for decades. Does it suffer from blind spots with regard to race and diversity? I certainly think that that kind of thinking absolutely did suffer from these uh, blind spots. And that's why I think the Washington consensus has been shown to be deeply flawed. It was something that I was challenging when I was working with Jeff Sachs to advise the Rwandan government, you know, in its first post-genocide IMF program. And, you know, these policies just seemed, they were just so... Uh, unhelpful. It was just ridiculous for the original IMF plan that was based on the Washington uh, consensus for it to even be articulated for this country. And that was the first time that donors had just decided to fund the budget of a country rather than impose their own plan, the IMF's own plan. That was a coup. That was that was an admission that the Washington consensus wasn't working. I was uh, grateful to be uh, a part of challenging the Washington consensus and its uh, appropriateness for every single uh, economy. Maybe appropriate for some, but it's not appropriate for all. I'm not even sure it's appropriate for some. One thing that we were finding at the time was that the Washington consensus policies didn't lead to growth. That's what you want. It's not just uh, stabilization that you want in the long run. You want, you want growth. You want the participation, uh, participation in the economy, and you certainly want to consider distribution. How is the how how are the resources of the economy distributed? And that's that's something that macroeconomists uh, say. One's working at the IMF. One's working at the Federal Reserve have begun to take uh, more seriously. So it is true that economists are rethinking some aspects of free market capitalism. But the economics profession in the West remains overwhelmingly white. What steps could be taken to make the field more welcoming for Black voices? Well, I think the, the first thing is that the results of the climate survey have to be taken seriously. Black women are shown to be the ones who are most discriminated against. I mean, we, we have to come up with policies and practices that welcome people and therefore welcome their ideas. There's got to be active acknowledgement of what is happening to Black women, say, or to Black people. Let's say in the academy, Black women are the least likely to get retention offers, uh, get outside offers and retention offers. And I think that makes the field poorer and, uh, and less relevant. Lisa, I'd like to end this episode by highlighting people of color, and in particular, Blacks, who are contributing to the economics profession. Whose work should we be paying attention to right now? 
you definitely should be paying attention to Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullins' work um, on reparations. They've been working on this for 30 years. Uh, certainly the work of Bo Jackson, uh, who does work on uh, on education. Same for Dania Francis, who also does work on education. I think Dania's work is really fascinating because it elucidates the pipeline. I mean, she found that AP math teachers were under-recommending Black women for AP courses. So, you know, if we're talking about Black women uh, not robustly participating in economics, well, we can see where it might be coming from. Gosh, there's so many. It's just uh, an incredibly interesting time. And I do hope that they get recognition and get cited. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. The pleasure's been all mine. That was Lisa Cook, an associate professor in the economics department at Michigan State University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.